0: a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith, brought to you by Lions Den Audio Theatre. Like and subscribe to Lions Den Audio Theatre for more Lions Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt.
1: Episode 23 of Saturday Night Live, starring Louise Laster, originally aired on July 24th, 1976. It's me again. It's Keith. And uh, with me, as always, is my good buddy, Matt. How you doing, Matt? Keith, did you know that
0: two months prior to this episode, Louise Lasser was arrested on felony cocaine possession? I had no idea. Ah. It's actually one of the few things I knew about Louise Lasser. (laughs) Uh,
1: Joining us tonight, our good buddy back, joining us for this infamous episode, the most infamous person we know. It's our Lions Den collaborator, good friend, wonderful guy, Mark. How you doing, Mark?
2: Good, thanks, and uh, happy to be here. Uh, Also, uh, I believe she was originally being uh, arrested for trying to purchase a dollhouse at a toy store, and then they found the cocaine because she couldn't; her credit cards weren't working or something, as she mentions later in the episode. And so she would refuse to leave without the dollhouse. And so yeah. when they went to take her in, they found the cocaine, which is like, if you know you got cocaine in your bag, maybe don't try to steal a dollhouse.
0: Refusing to leave without the dollhouse is exactly what somebody on cocaine would do. Yeah, that's very fair. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, she did say the cocaine was given to her by a fan a couple months before and she forgot about it in her purse. I forgot about it. There was 80
0: millimeters. That's 0.8. So she tried it. <laughs> you
1: get a gift of a
0: full gram, surely.
1: They said it was about six bucks in Coke. That's not adjusted for inflation. <laughs> so this episode, it's been two months since the last episode, the uh, Elliot Gould episode. This episode and the final episode, which we'll talk about next week with Chris Christofferson, these were tacked on at the end as the show got more popular and started picking up some Emmys. So these weren't part of the original plan. And uh, at times it feels like these were sort of this one in particular was a, was a tack on. So the uh, the host bio here, we have Louise Lasser. She was born in New York. She was a singer uh, in bars and coffee houses and stuff. And she went on to do some Broadway. She understudied for Barbara Streisand in a play I never heard of. She was married to Woody Allen from 66 to 70. And she went on to appear in a bunch of his things, even after the uh, divorce. She had quite a few TV bits. She had her claim to fame in January of 76 when she joined the television show Soap Opera Spoof, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. It was, that's actually a great show. Uh, it's, it's a real shame. It didn't, uh, didn't last. Unfortunately for Louise Lasser, it was a very grueling schedule and she did not respond well to it. She eventually went on to, uh, to, to quit the show early after two years. It then spun off into F- forever F- Fernwood. And I don't know if you remember this when we first got Bravo up here, uh, Martin Mull's talk show Fernwood tonight. Do you remember that? Absolutely not. Okay. It was a spinoff of that. Um, so a few weeks before this, as mentioned two months, she went into a, a store and she wanted to buy a dollhouse or Amex wasn't accepted. She wouldn't leave the store without the dollhouse cops were called and they found some cocaine on her purse. She was obviously having personal issues at this point, and uh, there's some other bits about this that come up. Some of it's alleged by cast members and writers, but uh, we'll we'll see as we go.
0: Are you guys familiar with her stuff at all? I thought uh, this was some sort of reference to Mary Hart of Entertainment Tonight. Uh, so no, absolutely zero. Yeah. Nothing. i not, not not even a recollection, not even of this episode. I knew nothing.
2: Yeah, me neither. I uh, I, I looked her up before, like just as I was about to watch the episode, and uh, none of it was ringing a bell for me at all.
1: Oh, I I know her from some of the Woody Allen stuff, the early Woody stuff. But uh, the thing I know her best as is on Taxi. She was she played Alex Rieger's ex wife, and she had a couple episodes there. A little bit of backstage, ska, and we'll get a fair bit here. First and foremost, Lasser. What she says is she was told by Lorne Michaels that she'd be writing and performing sort of her own material. And she was very leery to do sketches that were overly salacious or uh, off putting in any way, shape or form. As it turned out, she wound up just appearing basically with Chevy in a couple of things and then doing a bunch of things on her own. Another thing that uh, I read was that there's a suggestion that this was, uh, this was Lorne Michaels's attempt at getting Woody Allen's attention to come and host. First off, Louise Lasser is his ex-wife, and Allen, who was a jazz clarinet player, is a huge fan of the musical guest, the Preservation
0: Hall Jazz Band. Why am I not surprised that a woman married to Woody Allen is an absolute basket case of a person?
2: There's definitely a couple of moments I'm not super familiar with Woody Allen, but there's definitely some moments that sort of felt like that vibe, so that that doesn't surprise me.
1: Yeah, talented filmmaker, and that's about where it ends for me, Um <laughs> This episode is one that I definitely haven't seen before I watched it for this. There's a lot of sort of melding of fake and real in this episode. So as three vocal wrestling fans, I think we're the right three to be watching this one. Because there's a little bit of truth, a little bit of fakeness, and a little bit of nobody really knows going on here. I'm hoping for a five star. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has a work shoot vibe. Just to make things fun, all the drama behind the scenes, Scott, is not really confined to the uh, the host. John Belushi did an interview with Rolling Stone that appeared in July of 1976, about a week before this episode airs. John Belushi said, "Well, NBC loves Chevy. Plus, he's very good. Look, I love Chevy ever since The Lemmings. We were in that together. Chevy's a good actor." I think he's better in sketches than in all those bits as this Chevy Chase persona, in acted comedy as opposed to the presidential crap. But Chevy's holding the show as star, and I don't think it'd work. It sure wouldn't be the same show. I know I want in no way to become Carl Reiner to his Sid Caesar. Once we bend to a fucking star system here, everything changes. And that was John Belushi and Rolling Stone. So that brings us to the cold opening. The cast is crowded around Chevy and they're uh, trying to explain Belushi's motives for the interview. Belushi then comes in dressed like a Hollywood celebrity. He and Chevy uh, make amends because Chevy seems a little butthurt by what was going on. They shake hands and then they do the friendly punching each other in the arm. And then uh, John punches Chevy Chevy in the face and punches him right off the stage
0: when we get the uh, live from New York. Excellent topical meta great excuse for the fall belushi's great chevy's great love the cast gawking at them uh this is one of my favorite cold opens
2: yeah i have to agree uh it simultaneously like there was a a legit tension that really sold it and and i think for anyone at the time who would have read that and been aware that's a great live like it makes it feel real you know and and you know, Chevy's great at the, the, the big goofy fly across the, the stage and, and the big shit eating grin on his face when the camera comes into
0: him. I thought it was fantastic. They could both play uh, smarmy douchebags so well them like him versus him is like they they both get to up their game to 11 every opponent needs another great opponent
1: yeah i loved it i thought it was great the scummy part for me and there always is has to be a scummy part especially when it's involving john or chevy is that chevy writes usually writes the cold opens so of course he writes himself as the sympathetic one that all the uh cast is 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 behind and john's the
0: one who's got hollywood to it gone to his head that's a pretty funny circumstance uh to know about uh him writing himself as the the more sympathetic figure and but i I mean i always have to think you know the show is a hit and chevy Mm -hmm. is the star so uh as much as it's totally understandable that somebody like belushi would be like hey i could do this i could do that can't argue with the success of the show at this stage thanks to chevy chase and the little bit, is just a throwaway. Now, even though he got along with everyone,
1: we know that Aykroyd and Belushi were basically like brothers. But as Aykroyd's leaving, he says, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll drive you home after the show, Chevy. It's like, we know who he's hanging out with. It's not Chevy, but he's written to hang,
2: he's written to hang out with Chevy. <laughs> I love
1: that. So anyway, we now go to the monologue. Um, and I got to say, I think she gets, so she gets the biggest reaction from the audience to, to date, I think. Huge pop. This turns into kind of a meandering, rambling deal where she's kind of breaking down on the stage. Starts out okay, and she talks about how tired and nervous she is, and how tough her life has gotten, and she's not used to live TV. And the audience really gets uh, starts to get a little uncomfortable. They don't know if they should be laughing with her, laughing at her, not laughing at all, going up and giving her a hug. I'm getting uncomfortable watching this. She breaks down, she runs off stage. Uh, Gilda's the first to go to the door, tries to help her, asks if she has cramps, which got a laugh. Uh, Dan Aykroyd shows up as a uh, as himself pretending to be a parole officer to try to trick her out. And then in what turned out to be, I think, a pretty brilliant move, the land shark comes and knocks on her door and gets her out. I found this monologue very strange. Like, I've had anxiety attacks during shows, and I've witnessed people having them. She, she nailed that element of it. I'll, I'll give her that. It was uncomfortably good. But then the second she runs off stage... And the cameras and the lighting is where it needs to be. It lost me, even though Gilda, Chevy, and Dan were good. The, the sort of fake realism was blown out the window. And maybe that's knowing how it works 50 years later. I don't know what I would have thought at the time.
2: I guess sometimes there's, there's a real fine line bet- when you're doing comedy between, you know, y- you play it too big or goofy for the laughs. And then there's like, you know, the Leslie Nielsen where you play it super straight and that's what makes it funnier. And I don't know if that's what she's going for, but it feels like she goes too real with it. Like it's hitting too close to home. And so it does come across as uncomfortable as opposed to like, there's, there's a point just before she runs off where she mentioned she's, she's scared and someone in the audience laughs and she stops and glares at them and says, it's not funny, real, like subtly. And I couldn't tell if that was brilliant acting or totally real and either way it was it felt too real to be enjoyable as as a comedic bit and then like once they run backstage it's it's clearly a a bit at that point but it also feels like maybe this was the only bit they could get her to do because that's how she really was feeling at the time uh, I don't know. It's it's
0: it's a very strange way to get the show underway, though. Holy shit. Does Chris Christofferson ever have to be good next week for me to change my opinion here? This is my favorite monologue of the season. It is fantastic television. I don't know what it's supposed to be. I don't know if it's funny. I don't know if I'm comfortable. Anybody that knows me and knows that I love a train wreck. I have an affection for a good disaster. When she started talking about the cue cards, that's the first time they've ever referenced the cue cards. You don't get the... Yeah, but her referencing the cue cards made me think like, what the shit? Is she off the rails here? And at some point, outside of any joke whatsoever, somebody said something to her and she was like, what? Oh, okay. And then she just kept going with something like... What the hell was that? So yeah, do I believe that this was just some masterclass in meta-acting from this strange haircutted woman who's been arrested on felony cocaine possessions two months before this bizarre appearance? No, I'm pretty sure it wasn't just some sort of elaborate meta-act, but how much... Saturday Night Live was in on. I'm sure they'd never say or admit how much Lorne knew. I don't know. I really think the cue card bit was, uh, was a bit fit. But you know what? Then they showed the cue cards on the camera. I feel like Lorne is like Vince yeah. McMahon in that you don't see anything you weren't supposed to see. I digress. This is kind of my point. You can never really know. But what I know is I fucking loved it. Yeah, in, in her show, Mary
2: Hartman, Mary Hartman, she just had a mental breakdown as the character in the show, and, like, where she's clearly at the height of her popularity from that, like, everyone's clearly in on that, so it's really hard to tell, like, at what point, you know, this is some Andy Kaufman-level shit, where it's, like, the real, the and, and then the act uh, are, are so blurred together you don't know where one begins and one ends and you know i felt something i wasn't bored the other
1: spin to take it one layer deeper was uh, it was her idea to have mary have the mental breakdown because she was not living life well either like she was having a rough go herself you know i'm glad you brought up wrestling there matt because uh, you know if somebody runs into the arena or runs into the ring and we're not supposed to see them the camera cuts to something else so that's where the backstage business started to uh, started to bug me because it was all lit and ready to go you know you had Dan Gilda and Chevy standing by that was the point where this said to me okay this is scripted but during the monologue i didn't know what the hell was happening and i knew that she was this is a notorious episode for certain reasons and we're we're seeing one of the big reasons right now i digressed
0: and i didn't get to mention how much i loved chevy chase coming back as the shark and just saying mm-hmm. i i wanted to agree that it was fantastic and yeah i mean i don't think louis is Louis lasser just streets ahead of us all i don't know yeah, when
2: when the Land Shark showed up, that's when I knew it was definitely a bit, but also I was still left wondering, yeah, was she just so convincing in this bit? Or was this the only thing she was capable of doing as a bit? Like she was gonna do this either way, so that the cast prepared a bit around it, you
1: know? Man. And that's a great point, because uh, earlier in the day, I believe after dress rehearsal, she did lock herself in the dressing room and say she wasn't coming out. Now, I was going to save this at the end, but when she locked herself in her dressing room in real life, do you know what plan B was? No, did I, just come across
2: I, I, it? I do know that they divvied up some of the skits that she was supposed to be
1: in. Backstage that night was a young actor who had auditioned for them, and they wanted to sign, but they couldn't, um, a a gentleman by the name of Bill Murray. And they were going to pull out some sketches, the ones that are in there and a few other ones, and Bill Murray was going to slide into the role that Chevy usually played, and Chevy was going to serve as host. So now we go to what might be our first typical Saturday Night Live bit of the evening, and I think, um, I'm I'm now gauging, trying to gauge based on writing styles, but I I would bet that this one was written by Rosie Schuster. It's Garrett Morris playing General E.D. V.D. Amin, the Ugandan dictator E.D. Amin talking about syphilis. Garrett was fine. It, it had a couple of laughs in there. My favorite line was anybody can get it. Uh, even nice people like you and me. Um, but I think this sketch was
0: purely written because Edie Amin's first name rhymes with VD or VD. Pretty lazy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I chuckled. I did chuckle when I heard <laughs> Edie, VD. I mean, they could have wrote more jokes to carry it. The cheese joke was just kind of yucky. Uh, they, they just they didn't put a lot of thought into this. It was just here's this. Quick, cheap, easy and dirty. So I liked it. Fooling Death.
1: Um, and I, th- I assume this was written by Tom Schiller. It's a fucked-up parody of Bergman's Seventh Seal film. It's a couple played by Chevy and Lasser, and they're staring into each other's eyes as Death, played by Tom Schiller, narrates a lot of stuff in Swedish, and I don't know if it's real Swedish or not, and they uh, send Death out to pick up a pizza. Now, apparently, uh, based on an interview, I think it was Alan Zweibel, said that uh, this is the sort of stuff that Lasser wanted the whole show to be. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed this. I thought Schiller was fantastic too long, but this is the sort of stuff that SCTV and kids in the hall, this sort of subtle comedy stuff. They did a way better. Maybe it was because it was Chevy and, and Louise Lasser. Maybe this might've worked better with like Dan and Jane or something like that. But, uh, I really kind of like the idea, but it went on too long and I think it was poorly cast.
2: I think, uh, this one has a, a couple of things going against it. The, the whole first, two-thirds of the skit feels like it's just relying on all the different funny Swedish name pronunciations, but it's also got captions, like um, subtitle story rolling through, and the action that's happening, you know, Chevy and and Lasser are pawing at each other's faces awkwardly. It's supposed to be like a, a loving caress that slowly turns into like, you know, cheek pulling and, and, and stuff like that, but you can't really pay attention to both at once. And, and it definitely overstays its welcome a little bit. The, the final line about sending Death out for the pizza, but they tricked him. Uh, I got to laugh at that, but it definitely uh, was belabored.
0: Yeah, what a fucking dumb opening sketch. This isn't how you open the show with subtitles. You, this is television. You're trying to get viewers through the door. Stay tuned. Check out the next segment. Nobody nobody wants to watch this. I, I, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Don't get me wrong. There's... Uh, Somebody for everything. This is not why people are tuning into Saturday Night Live. This is terrible. This reflects that she is a pain in the ass to work with. Uh, I don't think this woman should be hosting the show because she seems to be very uninterested in hosting the show based on everything I've read. She doesn't want to work with the other cast members doing this pretentious shit like this. Absolute dud. Hate it.
2: Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think you make a good point in uh, how this is way too early in the show for a skit like this. If they had some big ruckus, uproarious sort of out of gear thing later on, this is the kind of skit you put on as a cool down afterwards because people are a little burned out. Yeah, if I'm going to watch something with subtitles, there better be full frontal.
1: (laughs) Our next bit, we go to a uh, Sacramento State Prison, where we're uh, joining uh, Sandra Good and Squeaky from uh, from the Manson Family, as played by Jane Curtin and Lorraine Newman, and uh, they have uh, this is a commercial. They're making potholders out of their own hair. This was uh, this was odd uh, as a one familiar with the uh, the Manson situations. Um, I, I got some sort of inside joke laughs out of this. But it wasn't great. Um, Newman and Curtin. uh, I don't know if you're out there uh, squeaky and sandy, but uh, Newman and Curtin are
0: way nicer looking. than They're too too pretty to be uh, sandy and squeaky. Yeah, you know, it's funny uh, because I was thinking during the uh, erratic monologue that our host reminded me of a bit of a Manson girl. Uh, And then I saw this sketch and had to chuckle. Uh, I thought they did very well. I found Jane particularly horrifying. Uh, that worked her stare into the camera when they did the when the bald reveal came this was weird and uh, i like it this is how i like my snl
2: i enjoyed it too Uh, uh i think yeah jane did an excellent job of the grounded focused unhinged while lorraine was being more frenetic and they played off each other really well it was super in vain with everything else that was mildly unsettling so far this episode uh i could have used maybe a breather from the discomfort bit but this was clearly intentionally uncomfortable just
1: to note on that uh, so far the most relaxed i've been is the sketch about the uh, genocidal dictator talking about syphilis
2: <laughs> yeah with the giant
1: hitler poster behind him we now go to our next sketch. It's Louise Lasser sitting at a table talking to a Golden Retriever dog about their relationship. And basically, it seems like she's making amends with the dog for making him fetch in front of other people. This sketch is all about that dog. The dog was uh, the dog was great. And, uh, you know, this wasn't what I'm coming to call Saturday Night Live appropriate. But, uh, but this wasn't bad. But uh, every bit of it's on the dog, I think.
2: I found this just strange and continued with the uncomfortable the dog is cute but also you know just having a live dog sit there and and to make this long of a segment about that there was one or two things that elicited chuckles from the audience i might have cracked a half smile at but it was it was a bit of the same thing i was talking about in the monologue where like she's playing it so serious that it almost feels like she doesn't know she's doing comedy and like there's that fine line between playing it straight to get laughs and just playing it straight is really tricky to describe but this whole emotional she's having this big emotional fight with this dog who's just smiling at her Uh, i don't know it it felt like Two sides of the screen were in different worlds. Like the left side was a real drama and the right was supposed to be a comedy show.
0: I really thought this was exceptionally shitty. I read that this was the result of her not wanting to work with any of the uh, cast members other than Chevy Chase, which, which left the writers scrambling, which left us with arbitrary, bizarre shit like this. I really think it did not work. We now go to
1: something that I think was probably written by Aykroyd. Um, Dan Aykroyd, it's called a cathode ray. Aykroyd plays a television scientist or a scientist of sort talking about TV. It's very strange. And then he throws to uh, Lorraine with Gilda and Jane singing a song about the cathode ray tube television set. Uh, They're basically a girl group with Lorraine as the lead and then uh, Gilda and Jane as the backups. Song was great. Performance was great. And then they started fucking with the tech. And the music was too loud to begin with. They start trying to do this blue screen stuff that really distorts not just the uh, women's clothes, but their faces as well. I really wish I could have seen this live maybe without the blue screen shit wrecking it because I thought the women were
0: absolutely fantastic. Loved Lorraine in this. Thought she was awesome. And oh gosh, the other two were great too. You were right. Great performance. It's unfortunate about the tech. It's also a weird sketch. I feel like You know, everything so far is like an end of night thing. This whole episode is like end of night sketches. They're far out. I kept thinking about Videodrome and Marshall McLuhan and the cathode ray tube. And uh, don't get me wrong, though, I, I dig it. I like this far out stuff. And I I didn't hate this. The the intro by Dan Aykroyd with with the weird
2: little TV lens glasses was a nice energetic and strange setup, and I, I couldn't help but get like I don't know, early Weird Al vibes from from the the lyrics. And just yeah, fantastic performance, super energetic. I think my favorite part of the technical difficulties was when Gilda Radner just straight up picked a wedgie while they had their backs turned to the camera at one point. I saw that. Yeah yeah uh it was just you know is what it is but i had a good laugh at that but yeah it was it was it was a strong performance the the technical difficulties were not difficulties but the technical attempts it was it was a little odd but i i guess knowing it's a show from the 70s i've got a little bit more patience for that sort of stuff
1: yeah it's funny you know i don't know if you watched the hilarious house of Frankenstein, but they never fucked this up so bad you know this was they always had a their green screen pretty good for the Wolfman segments, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were on it, but Vincent Price wasn't putting up with no shit.
1: That's true, yeah. 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 <laughs> so we now go to Weekend Update, and it's the official broadcast of the 1976 Montreal Olympics. So Chevy's on the phone, and he says a lot of men like that taste. And then notices and hangs up his usual phone bit. And he says, I'm Chevy Chase, and boy, are you glad to see me. It's been two months since we've seen Chevy live. A few bits that I like. Gerald Ford says, only in America can a young boy from Michigan grow up. Loved it. We talk about Nadia Comaneci is the top star at the Olympics. And Belushi interviews Gilda as Olga Corbett, who was supposed to be the top star. She says mean things in Russian, and the translation uh, contradicts this. I thought Gilda was great, and I thought Belushi was really good here as a fake Russian interviewer. We have a picture of uh, Muhammad Ali combing his forehead, and uh, Chevy throws out the line. It's all over but the shouting, but doesn't say what it is. There's a map with a giant arrow, and Chevy says that the arrow actually fell to Earth. That got a laugh out of me. What didn't get a laugh at at me though is they talk about the Chowchilla kidnapping, where uh, three suspects basically hijacked a school bus and buried a bunch of kids in the ground. Uh, fortunately, this was in July fifth. This was July fifteenth of seventy six, so only uh, what nine days before. Um, the kids and the driver did escape on their own after sixteen hours, but uh, they've had rough lives since. A lot of them have had some problems. Um, What a terrible thing to joke about. Chevy does his narrator bit that Matt despises over a bunch of toy Martians welcoming the the Viking probe to Mars. And then someone calls to let Chevy know that the Democratic convention
0: is over. So there's a lot to unpack there, fellas, but uh, but have at it. Somebody's got to learn to say no to Chevy. Like, I know he's the star. I know the show's a hit. Somebody keeps letting him do this voiceover bit. And I know he's probably in charge. He probably gets to say a Weekend Update, it's probably down to Lorne. Lauren. Lauren's not stepping up here and saying, you know what, Chevy? how about we try to write something else? Uh, I did think Belushi and Gilda were great. They were my favorite part. Obviously, terribly distasteful about recent tragedies. I did find the general jokes above average for Weekend Update as far as their, their routine little foul liners. They, they were a little sharper and funnier than usual. It seemed, the production seemed really chaotic. Uh, am I crazy or was there a background noise of like a newsroom? Am I making that up? Did I just hear that? That actually... No, are- you, heard, you heard it. You heard yeah. it.
2: Yeah. That reminds me of something I missed in the uh the Dan Aykroyd lead in to the song bit. The, you could hear them, I think they were trying to get the dog wrangled backstage, and you could hear someone talking over him while he was trying to do his lead in. One point he looks to the left with yeah, like, looked, like yeah. what the hell's going on over there? And you could hear someone like calling a uh, Maggie or whatever. But yeah, this did feel a little bit chaotic, along with like there's a weird chaotic tension going through the whole show. And at the start, even, when they're like, and now Weekend Update, and then there was a weird beat, and then they said, Weekend Update, the official news show of the Olympics. Uh, Like, the timing felt off, and and the way they were bouncing around with the cameras, and Chevy was sort of chasing
0: it. I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be a bit, or just something was like a little off. Interesting note, if you read the uh, SNL book, uh, Live from New York, you uh, do discover that the the dog actually left immediately after filming, and they were trying to wrangle Luis Lasser. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh. Yeah. For the weekend update, the uh that voiceover bit with the, the little toys for the, the Mars landing did feel like, you know, high school drama, silly shit. I, I really enjoyed the the mini little skit with Gilda and John. And as Chevy's laying on how far this former star has fallen, you can Gilda really subtly sells it with her eyes. Like there's this glaring seething sadness building up. I thought that was really well done. You didn't mention my favorite joke from the the whole segment, though. Uh, the picture of Gerald Ford in the back with his hand to his chest but it's mm. on like a weird angle. So his hand looks really tiny and Chevy makes the joke about how his corsage was provided by a fake limb specialist. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I laughed hard at that because I noticed his hand looked weird before he even brought it up. Yeah. Mildly self-indulgent at one or two points, but overall solid. So our next bit is a uh, teen talk. It's Jane
1: and Gilda. And this seems like a, I think this is a, a Marilyn suzanne miller piece and this is something of a throwback to the slumber party sketch from the madeline Kahn episode so they're two young women teen teenagers and they're talking about dating and if jane has ever looked at her boyfriend's junk and if her boyfriend's ever seen her chest this was funny but it was a sitcom style piece like it again it's something that that didn't fit maybe we'll get more used to it as miller writes some more stuff um, this is one sketch that Louise Lasser was cast in and she refused to do it because she found it too salacious and she didn't want her parents to watch her talking about male genitalia. So Jane slid in and took the role and uh, I thought Jane and Gilda did great in a piece that uh, I didn't hate. Um, I, I, I laughed a few times, but it uh, I'm definitely not the target market for this
0: one. So glad Jane ended up doing this. I thought she was fantastic as the girl with the boyfriend. And Gilda was so good as the uh, the curious, more virginal of the two. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was hilarious when she kept up thinking the ante about looking at his penis and that whole conversation about looking at his penis. Uh, I loved it. I thought this was really funny. They, they played really well off of each
2: other. It did feel a little more like, like you said sitcom uh, vibes. Like it, it, this felt the the characters felt like we should already know them, but yeah, the way they, they ramp things up. Also some of the, the humor with the food, like partway through Gilda just reaches into this big tray of food that they have and pulls out a whole bunt cake and puts it on her lap out of nowhere. I was, <laughs> there was a nice little visual gag that was just sort of tacked on, but I thought, yeah, they, uh, they, they, they did a great job with it. Uh, I think it was a tad long for a skit format. But if if this was like a scene in a TV show, it's it's bang up. Yeah, this was almost like um you know, certainly the ages are
1: different, but this is almost like a the Golden Girls cheesecake talks they'd have in the middle of the night, you know, <laughs> and I I like those so yeah <laughs> big gold big golden girls fan here um the next bit we go to is the diner and this is a short film it was allegedly a louise lasser piece that uh not allegedly this is a louise lasser piece that replaced something that she and chevy did at the democratic national convention that she just wanted pulled so uh louise lasser and writer alan swibel play a couple and they're in a diner and she's going to break up with him she gets really nervous and starts sort of prattling on and, and rambling and it Turns into the character being nervous, into the actor being nervous. There's just a lot of mumbling and incoherence. She's drowned out by the background noise. and She can't get to her point, and she forgets her lines. So then she calls for a line, and it's given to her by uh, uh, Audrey Pert Dickman, who's one of the associate producers. feeds She feeds her her lines. So uh, Alan Zweibel tries to help, and then he forgets his lines, and then they call in Lauren Michaels and Lauren comes on stage. Louise is having a tough time. So Lauren says, go relax at the uh, counter. He actually says, bar, go relax at the bar and we'll try another take. She goes over to the counter where uh, a person sitting there and it's actually actor Michael Sarazen, who's playing a regular patron. But now it's her boyfriend and he calls for a line. Dickman's completely lost in the script my final on this was this was a great idea that was pulled off very poorly i could barely hear half of it over the the, the background noise this was meta on top of meta on top of meta it was clever but uh, my god the execution was miserable
0: yeah just dreadful like why is so why is Alan swibel and lauren michaels agreeing to do this shit uh, assuming they didn't know what the production quality was going to be because you're right couldn't hear shit. And I just thought it was a disaster. I did not enjoy a second
2: of it. This was pretty awful. This is kind of where I stopped trying to even like her as a host. (laughs) You know, I was trying to hang in there and waiting, waiting to get the joke. And then this just the moment that got me to get off the bus was when she took his orange juice and started chugging it like it was supposed to be a joke, but she didn't finish the whole glass. She drank like eighty percent of of the original boyfriend's orange juice, like she was stealing his drink or whatever. She didn't order anything, and then, yeah, she didn't finish the whole thing. and And that just, for some reason, that made me snap again. You said it was there was a good idea in here somewhere, but absolutely awful execution, and just it loses itself up its own arse and they make sure at the end to say a Louise Lasser film,
1: just so everyone knows who's responsible for this, I think.
2: Yeah, (laughs) that that, that seems like something she requested for her own ego, and they were all more than happy to be like, yep, sure (laughs) thing. So I, think all on the,
0: uh, I think it was Alan's Zweibel that said put her fucking name on this so makes <laughs> I don't want anybody yeah Gary Weiss. Gary Weiss. Gary Weiss, yeah, yeah, sorry.
1: Because I thought it was a Gary Weiss film at first. And even Jabby Anderson yeah, yeah. says it comes off comes, like- I now present something you will all find interesting, I think is what he said.
2: And then he looks off to the right or to his right, and then yeah. like is, he's got like a smirk on his face as he's waiting, like, take this camera off me because I need to laugh at how bad this is going to
1: bomb. Oh. <laughs> so now we go to our next bit. It's John Belushi standing in front of a, the uh, an image of the uh, Samurai Deli sketch that he was in. He's promoting his new line of men's clothing, which is basically the clothes he is wearing at that point in time. And he's going to try to sell you it. He then goes on to trying to sell some of his personal stuff like a broken radio and some of his discs um, because he's a he's a struggling television performer and uh, not making that much money. I really I enjoyed this. This was uh, one of the better Belushi bits uh, of the year, I think.
2: I quite enjoyed it, too. I thought it was pretty funny. I also thought it was a real nice uh, juxtaposition to his like Hollywood star dickhead persona from the very start of the show. So I don't know if that lends maybe a little bit of credibility to, like, if he wrote this skit as a rebuttal to being written into being the, the Hollywood douchebag by Chevy at the start. Um, yeah, super simple premise, sold well.
0: Uh, I thought it was good. I love it when I'm at oddsies. Uh, I thought this was really stupid. I didn't like it at all. I didn't laugh once. Uh, I, I, I really like this was a filler because Luis was difficult. We don't see eye to eye on this one. Incidentally,
1: I looked into it uh, and uh, the performers got $750 an episode. And I've always thought these poor actors the first year making nothing. They got a huge bump if they were writers. Um, but uh, $750 and $76 is thirty six forty five, dollars 45 And uh, that translates to be over 24 episodes. That's $87,000.
0: Not a lot for a TV person, but certainly enough to live on, I think. I mean, they're, I guess, living in New York. But yeah, still, nevertheless, it's 1976, surely. And the Coke bills are high. And it depends on what side of 42nd Street you buy on, probably.
2: Not if you're Louise Lasser, apparently. She just gets it handed to her for free.
0: <laughs> By
2: well-meaning
1: fans. So our next sketch, uh, Dan Aykroyd plays Jimmy Carter. And uh, just keeping track of this, this is his second presidential impression. He's done Nixon. Um, it's the fourth president to Im- be impersonated on the show, uh, Reagan was impersonated but not yet president jimmy carter basically wants people to meet him and uh he's showing how he's going to connect with people and how he's going to do his speeches jimmy carter by dan Aykroyd. Uh, is a good impression at this point. It certainly goes on to get a hell of a lot better. thought it was a solid sketch, but not uh, not great.
0: I enjoyed the impression, that's for sure. I uh, I didn't love all the jokes. Uh, it was pretty topical, obviously, uh, when you do the president. But uh, this is the first time that I've seen Dan Aykroyd do Jimmy Carter, and uh, I've heard a lot about it. And, I, you know, he, he certainly did a good job.
2: I thought it was uh, pretty good, uh, the, the way he sort of lampoons the eye contact and and the dramatic pauses and and really gets into it with that was was pretty funny and the final line you know the the bob dylan line you must not feel so alone everybody must get stoned and then flashes the big big grin Uh, i felt that was that was pretty cute it was it was good it's our
1: second first lady to appear and it's uh well not appear we hear the voice of rosalind carter and that's jane Curtin so jane's uh jane's two for two with these first ladies so then we go to a Chiron and it's of it's on uh, one of three men who are sitting in the audience with pigtails and it says who are we to judge this person um while the Chiron didn't entertain me i'm starting to notice and i'm sure you guys are too people are bringing signs to the tapings
2: starting to feel like a, a live wrestling audience with that. And I, I don't find the, the Chirons all that entertaining for myself, but I, I imagine it adds some energy to the live audience and, and helps create the environment to, to make
0: it feel more exciting and live and dangerous. It's weird how even in 1976, somebody had a sign that said Kane Dewey. <laughs> Wank pheasant.
1: Um, <laughs> So then we have our musical, our official musical performance of the night by the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And uh, this is some Dixieland jazz. Uh, The band was founded by Alan Jaffe, or Jaffe, I think, in 1976. Or, Jesus, that's not even close. In 1963. And they were uh, based at the Presidential Hall in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Yeah, so this particular band features Percy Humphrey on trumpet, Willie Humphrey on clarinet, Frank Demond on trombone. Narvin Kimball on banjo, Sing Miller on piano, Alan Jaffe himself on tuba, and I think it's Cy Fraser on drums. This is great classic Dixieland jazz. Not at all appropriate for the time of night it was playing,
0: but uh, I I really loved this uh, performance. Really, really enjoyed it. Wildly inappropriate for both the show and the time of night and the theme of the whole episode. Literally, the only reason I can see you wanting to put this on television is to lure the attention of a pedophile. A particular one, not just any random one. <laughs> no, no. <This> is, <laughs> let's not accuse We're this band here. of being
2: pedophile music. No. <laughs>
0: when he shows up from Brooklyn. Like, oh, I heard that <laughs> music. He was like, like you summoned yeah. me. There, there was one or two suspect mustaches in the band, though, so maybe oh. you're not wrong. And Suffice it to say, that I, I thought this was exceptionally poor. I hated every second of this. Definitely felt like it was wildly out
2: of place. Uh, the only thing about it that made any sense was the the weird, artsy choices and the, the stuff that Louise Lassers had her say in, so like, it was pretty obvious why they were there. Uh, they didn't even look like they understood why they were there. All that being said, I thought the performance slapped my... Foot started tapping, they were getting into it by the end when they were getting up and doing all their solos. They were having a blast and, and enjoying the live audience. But I still don't think any of those gentlemen have any clue what Saturday Night Live actually is. They look like they were just playing for a bingo hall and having a good time with it, you know.
1: I just love the fact that pedophiles throughout the world they hear Dixieland jazz <laughs> and they just navigate,
2: <laughs> just come flocking. <laughs> oh,
1: God. <laughs> so our last uh, segment, Louise Lasser comes out, takes off her shoes and then puts them on again and then uh, takes them off again. And she's talking about her life. She says it's 1.30 in the morning, which is a, a nice shout out to the Atlantic Time Zone. Thank you very much. But she talks about her year and how tough it's been. And she talks about the dollhouse and the coke incident. And every time she mentions Mary Hartman's name, she goes into George Cohen's song, Mary. Um, she just rambles on here. It's about her year of fame and how tough it's been and and, and all that stuff. Uh, terrible. Just uh, if
2: anything tied in with the monologue, but this was terrible. I God damn it, I didn't like it. this was was pretty uncomfortable um, in the same vein as the monologue, but without some sort of attempt at a joke at the end. She, she tried to make some jokes throughout and like one or two of them were successful with the live audience. But yeah, it was it was a pretty rambly I, I felt at this point almost like I was just watching a TV show trying to exploit someone's legitimate mental
0: health issue. And it, it felt kinda grimy. Yeah, I mean I can only agree agree, sorry, with you guys. It didn't didn't work for me. I didn't think it fit. It was just weirdly uncomfortable. I found the whole thing very uncomfortable and not in like the nice way I found the monologue. It was like boring, uncomfortable.
2: There was a the way she kept repeating the the Mary just the sing songy bits reminded me a lot of the repetition from the Billy Crystal bit yeah that that episode where he did the jazz singing he kept on going back to that line can you dig it I knew that you could. And, and there was something about it that just made me think, was there like a weird trope or meme from the seventies where you just randomly incoherently tell stories and repeat a line that's not funny. And somehow mm. it comes around like it, it just, I got, I got similar vibes from that just the way she kept repeating that thing, but it seemed like the ramblings of a, a, a mentally unwell individual. Yeah. And you
1: know, I mean, she obviously had a rough year, um she had a rough time dealing with her fame but there are very few celebrities that we as regular folk want to listen to about their problems um I, my heart goes out to her, but she attained fame and and money and stuff like that. When you start saying, you know, uh, let me tell you about the tragic thing that happened to me in Beverly Hills, you, you sort of you sort of lose a lot of people there, but yeah, it, it's it it was poorly thought out,
2: yeah, it definitely feels like she was working through some personal stuff. Almost mm-hmm. like it's a, a, a one person show as opposed to, you know, the closing segment of a comedy show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 again, felt kind of artsy. And, and was it common for it to be like for them to do a second monologue like this? No. no. Like that, that felt weird to me, like that the first one, like if the first one was so outrageously good, they wanted to try it again. Sure. But after the mess of the opening, how would they close the same way? Yeah. And this, I mean, they did, they closed the same way. It ties in
1: perfectly well with the, uh, the monologue. Like it could have been, some of this could have been part of that and just done it all at once. I, I don't know. I just think this was just give the host her time. So she'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then we go to the goodbyes and, uh, what's noticeable at this goodbye is the, uh, the cast certainly keeps their distance uh, as soon as they can. Chevy and Aykroyd go upstage, uh, Garrett and Belushi start, Conversing with the audience members, Lorraine boots it right for the dog, sort of leaving Jane and Gilda there to talk to uh, to talk to the host. This was an interesting goodbye. I did like the uh, the play that the cast were having with the audience. And I kind of wish there was more of that over the years. Uh, like Belushi was trying to sell his clothes to audience members, or at least pretending to try to sell his clothes. And when people tried to buy it, he he took their money, but I don't think he gave them the clothes. So uh, that was the goodbyes. Anything jump out for for you fellas?
2: Yeah, I think you nailed all the the major bits. I, I did have a chuckle at Belushi, you know, resuming the the selling his clothes bit. Um I noticed she technically didn't actually thank the cast. She, no she thanked the dog and the band and the guy who was in the video, um, uh, Michael Sarah's in. And then she said, and these guys and just like gestured to them, like they're there. And then thank everybody. And it, it was almost like an unintentional refusing to say the words to them. And yeah, like Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase are well in the shadows at that point. And, 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 and at the very, like, as it's panning out to the audience, I notice her, sort of go around Jane and Gilda after they, they talked to her, and she kind of made a beeline to Chevy, and, and I couldn't mm-hmm. quite see what was happening, but there was an interaction going on back there uh, just
0: at the very close. But yeah, mm-hmm. felt felt weird. I don't really have anything to add. She seems like a real shithead. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump to the epilogue. So uh,
1: Louise Lasser, she continued acting. Uh, she left Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman after the uh, second year. That was the peak of her fame. She she continued to do stuff. Like I said, I remember her for Alex's wife on Taxi. Uh, today she's running a school, um, and uh, and I mean her career never peaked again. But she did. She stayed busy, and I think she. It seems like she got over her her personal issues, which honestly, based on what I'm seeing, might have had as much to do with a sudden shot to fame um but yeah so she kept going preservation hall jazz band it's uh it's still going it's been everywhere it's done a ton the current lineup is is naturally uh, quite different if i'm ever in the big easy i'm gonna go see them there's not you i don't usually get into this but there, there was some fallout from the show so louise lasser becomes the first person to be banned from saturday night live and that to me is just such a stupid term because, you know, you're banned from Saturday Night Live, maybe as a cast member, but as a host, I mean, as a host, you're either asked back or you're not, right? She was just not asked back. Jill Claiborne was never asked back. It doesn't mean she was banned. The episode didn't air again until 81 and it was kept on a very limited cycle when it was released in reruns and stuff like that michael o'donohue one of the head writers once he heard uh, what louise lasser wanted and sort of got a sense of what she was up to he walked off the show that week and didn't work Um, he went on to say that she really seemed like a really nice woman who just had too many problems she was dealing with at the time she said she didn't like chevy but thought gilda was a complete Doll, and just another bit that I didn't have anywhere to put in was I think it was Alan's Y said that uh, she spent some time crawling around the offices looking for coke, and all she wanted to do was a bunch of weird movie bits. So, uh, that's the uh, Louise Lasser bit. This episode is notoriously known as one of the worst, but uh, we'll see how we feel about that in a few minutes. Anything
0: Ironically, it sounds heard? like uh, it sounds like the exact kind of woman I'd date. <laughs> uh,
1: rating the host, talking about the host. The only thing I could say was what a trip. She was having a rough time in life. Uh, fortunately, seems to have gotten over it. Gone. She's done some more work. Respectable instructor these days. One thing I will say is as, as much as I turned on her here for her performance, the live audience stayed with her. They didn't abandon her, which would have made things even worse than they already were. Um, It's interesting that she wanted to try a few different things and and, and do some different stuff on the show, but alienating yourself from the cast, who are the stars, and by this point the show has become far less about the host and more about the cast. um, It's too bad that working with the cast wasn't an option. I cannot say she was a good host, but I also can't say she was an uninteresting host, because this was was interesting, and to be perfectly honest, I I laughed a lot at uh, elements of this show, and I was definitely watching it like a hawk
0: definitely not the worst and there's there's just something about good television now she is not a good host and i don't think she should have hosted the show at all especially the uh you know the not wanting to work with the cast or uh, she shouldn't have been on the show and somebody on the show should have noticed that flagged that said you know let's find somebody else for this extra episode but be that as it may my goodness, does it make for good TV? And I am sure somebody that likes good TV, so this is certainly far from the worst I've seen this season.
2: Yeah, I uh, can't say I, in enjoyed it as a comedy program in the overall. I was a little more um, uh, fresh coming in. I didn't really know the background so much. So the whole first 20 minutes was just uncomfortable. Even like the skits that they were doing were even pushing at it. So it it was a little strange. But yeah, it was engaging television. And knowing that she was going through some personal issues makes a lot of it make sense. I don't know if that makes it better or worse for me it, it seems like at some point they should have reined her in a little bit like it, it didn't feel like their show by the end of it it felt like hers and i don't know if they just got out of the way and tried to weather it or if they they let it run amok to make it engaging but it was a very strange episode to say the least i wasn't bored i felt things the musical guests uh for me the preservation hall
1: jazz band fine one short bit Definitely not enough. I would love to go see this band live. They're the gold standard for what they do.
2: I thought it was wildly out of place, but I also thoroughly enjoyed it. And with the way the rest of the episode went, the fact that it was out of place made it seem more in place somehow, I guess. If I'm getting (laughs) too meta. So I thought they were great. I enjoyed it. It really did seem like a non sequitur there, actually, now that you mention it. Yeah and like just the one quick performance you know and all these old guys with their pants hiked up to their chests and their socks showing just having a time they were into it and that got me into it and and two randomly placed young guys youngish guys young-ish. yeah
1: yeah the the brass the the tuba and the trombone tuba and the trombone yeah the worst bit of the episode
0: that
2: film fuck that film
0: uh, I, I would uh, I would say the other film, which I consider a film, the the subtitled film at the top of the show, uh, I thought that was atrocious.
1: I went with Louise putting on her shoes at the end. Just not even a good idea. And I was really pissed off that she took her shoes off, put them on, and then took them off again, and then put them on again. It's like, Jesus Christ, just walk out carrying them for Christ's sake. It can't be the weirdest thing you've done that week. <laughs> so what's the uh, the best bit of the evening?
2: Probably the song that Lorraine, Gilda, and Jane did for me. Their performance was just joyful and and fun. And
0: they were were into it, and they sold the shit out of it. And I I thought it was pretty great. My favorite of the evening was Would You Look At It. Uh, I thought they were both so good. The conversation about whether or not you'd look at it, and the various stakes, and upping the ante about whether or not you'd look at it if this, would you look at it if that. Best sketch of the night, though.
1: Best for me, it was totally slim pickings on this one. I actually went with the cold open. Uh, I wanted to pick the cathode ray, and I had it picked, but
0: on the second viewing, the tech was just hideous. So, uh, Star of the Night. Jane Curtin, for me, Jane Curtin was amazing as a replacement in that sketch uh, with Gilda Radner, and I thought she was fantastic as a mountain, a mountain, (laughs) as a Manson girl, uh, chilling, and... She was also she was a great backup singer and the uh, the TV sketch Jane Curtin for the night for me I love you Jane please return my emails. I'm really struggling
2: to pick between Jane, Lorraine and Gilda. Uh, just fantastically strong performances through the whole episode between the, the two of them in the Manson thing and the two of them, I guess this is starting to make the case for Jane. Uh, but then Gilda also as the the Russian gymnast, the the whole musical sequence with all three of them involved, where Lorraine really got to shine. It just it feels like all three of them showed up for this episode and, and knocked it out of the park as a, as a team. This is tough. I
0: guess Matt already picked Jane, so I will go with Gilda. I disagree. I think this is a shy vote for Jane. <laughs> <laughs> it, it evens out.
1: I went with uh, Lorraine, and it was tough between Lorraine and Jane for me. But I did go with Lorraine because of uh, what she what she was singing in that bit was uh, that was some pretty difficult lyrics to uh, t- to bang out. And then uh, I I like her squeaky from uh, um, I just I thought she she nailed this one. She was very tactful by going down and playing with the dogs and obviously ignoring Louise Lasser. She was like, oh, I like dogs. So, yeah, I went with Lorraine. So it was definitely a night for the female, like none of the females. None of the guys were even close in this for me. Uh, Overall. The show, for me, it was too different from what I've come to expect. What was good was stylistically very different from what the show usually is. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but uh, a lot of the stuff just didn't work. One thing that kind of got me is the writers had two months off, and and this is the shit they come up with in, in in 60 days. Now, Lasser may have nixed a lot of stuff, but even the regular fare that didn't involve her, none of it was stellar, stellar stuff. And then maybe they just threw in the towel after they saw that Lasser was just, or her people or whatever, were just uh, messing with things. All that said, though, this was not the least funniest episode to date. This was not the worst episode that we've seen thus far. Most of the show, especially the stuff without the host, was solid, if not awesome. And even some of the stuff she was in was was kind of enjoyable in, in its own way. It seemed in some cases just things were sort of out of sync, semi-finished, some good ideas with bad execution or bad ideas with good execution. The musical guests were more or less non-entities. Yeah, just uh, nothing hit perfectly. I gave this one a 4.5 out of 10.
2: Yeah, it definitely feels like an overall very disjointed episode. And when it goes wrong, it doesn't just not hit. There are points where it hits wrong. If that makes sense, it almost like takes away from the enjoyment and and makes it bad. So when it does hit, there's there's some good, some really shining moments, but they really struggle to pick me back up from the things that made me just feel bad and uncomfortable. So. Yeah, it's definitely got to get a failing grade. I'm going to give it a four.
0: What a weird episode. You know, you always hear me go on, as I'm sure our thousands of fans are sick of hearing me say. Like, oh, Matt wants the show to be weirder. Matt wants the show to be weirder. So here they give us one of the weirdest episodes of the season. And I know what everybody's thinking. He better give this one a high mark. Well, you know what? There's a couple of problems with this episode, not the least of which is with this perverse jazz music. I hated the musical guest. There was so many duds of sketches that I hated the John Belushi clothes thing, but there was also some really strong highlights, uh, like Jane Curtin, as I mentioned, has been great throughout the episode. And I also mentioned that I love good television and I respect a good train wreck. I give this episode 55 Out of 10.
1: Another rare time where Matt is the kindest. So let's see what we have. Our average score here is 4.7. The Internet Movie Database gives this a 5.2. And they rank this as the worst episode of the season by quite a margin. As of July of this past year, it was the 855th best show. 70th, thereabouts, 70th worst show ever. You think that might be lore? of the show affecting it and people not actually watching the show or what do you think's up there?
0: It has to be the lore. I firmly believe lore carries a lot of these old SNL episodes because quite frankly, I don't think people are as dedicated as you and I are.
2: Yeah. It definitely feels like the the story informs a lot of what's going on. And, And the fact that they made her band, like you said, she was the first band performer from snl you know you just don't ask them back as opposed to making a public statement that they don't get to come back that kind of creates a, a, the lore around it you know makes the story so that's it for the famous
1: louise lasser episode mark thank you so much for being the one to take the bullet and join us for
2: this one <laughs> yeah hopefully next time uh, i get an actually good host that would be nice <laughs> one of these days this one was the best
0: days. TV of the season, though. You can sit back and watch some boring ass fucking host go through the motions and make the, you know the 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 random jokes that are topical at the time. Do the traditional parodies. I think you're a winner. I think you got to see the most unique episode of season one. And I wanna say personally, this was a fantastic episode to record with both of uh-huh. you. I'm honored and pleasured.
2: Ah, thank you. It has been an honor to be involved in the weirdest episode of the season.
1: Well, hopefully Mark, uh, you can go back in season two where we can stand around and honor each other. So next time we'll be back. It's the end of the season. It's episode 24 of Saturday night live with host Chris Christopherson. He's the SNL host with the second highest IQ and a uh, musical guest, Rita Coolidge. But until then, we'll be stealing dollhouses, avoiding fans of Dixieland jazz, honoring each other in a circle. Here in Essen Hell.